We left Jesus at the age of 12, back at home, safe and sound, after his escapades at the temple. It's about six common era, and virtually all of Palestine is ruled by Herod Archelaus. All this blue part. Jesus and his family live in Galilee, which is the area west of the Sea of Galilee, and they live in a town called Nazareth. Meanwhile, farther south, Herod Archelaus has built a great palace at Jericho. He is so cruel and oppressive that the Jews and Samaritans accuse him of crimes before Caesar Augustus. Herod Archelaus is summoned to Rome to stand trial, but before he goes, he has a dream. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is in a history written by Josephus, who lived at this time. Herod Archelaus dreams about 10 thick ears of wheat being eaten by oxen. None of his wise men can interpret the dream, so he ends up consulting an Essene. The Essenes are a strict religious group living very near Jericho in a community called Qumran. It's just like, you can see the star, it's just on the western shore of the north end of the Dead Sea. So an Essene named Simon tells Archelaus that the oxen represent suffering and the 10 ears of wheat mean he will only reign for 10 years. Well, that's not good news because he's already been reigning 10 years. <laughs> and sure enough, less than a week later, Archelaus is summoned to Rome where he stands trial for his crimes against the Jews and Samaritans and is sentenced to exile in Gaul. So why did he ask an Essene? Well, there's a satellite map of the area we've been looking at here at the north end of the Dead Sea. You can see the mountains and the sea and everything. And you can see Jericho at the top of the map. And here is Qumran just below it. The Essene community lives at Qumran. And if these names are familiar to you, it's because they're very famous. The Essenes collected a huge library of, scro of scrolls and stored them in caves near Qumran. Here's a view across Qumran from one of their storage caves. You can see the Dead Sea there in the distance. And here's a view of some of the caves. So fast forward to 1947, just after World War II, some bored teenage Bedouin shepherds are out here tending their goats, and they can't resist throwing stones into those caves above them. But when they do, the boys hear pottery shattering. They scramble up into the cave and find several jars of scrolls. Knowing they found antiquities of value, they take some of the scrolls and sell them. It isn't long before scholars notice the scrolls on the market and the hunt is on. Everyone, archaeologists, scholars, treasure hunters are out trying to find scrolls and scroll fragments. The findings are a treasure that comes to be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's actually a miracle any of the scrolls survived the search. And in fact, we are sure that some did not. The scrolls are dated from about 150 BCE, which was shortly after the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes during the time of the Maccabees. And they continue, scrolls are dated, you know, in the collection that we found to all the way up to 70 common era, which is when the Romans will come and crush the Jewish revolt that takes place after Jesus' death. The scrolls miraculously include our only known complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, and they include portions of many other books. The Essenes here at Qumran unknowingly preserved a huge gift for us. Here's a picture of part of the excavations being done at the community base in Qumran. The scrolls include the Essenes' own governing orders um, for their community, as well as their religious beliefs. At the time of Christ, there were somewhere around 
4,000 Essenes, mostly men living all throughout Palestine in monastic communities. There's probably only about 300 Essenes living at Qumran, just south of Herod Archelaus's palace in Jericho. They observe all the Mosaic laws meticulously, and they believe the soul lives on forever like the Pharisees, but they do not believe in a resurrection of the body. So they don't fully align with either the Pharisees or the Sadducees. The Essenes, in fact, use different purification rituals than those required by the Pharisees. So they end up getting barred from going to the temple to worship. And that's an important point. Remember that the Essenes are barred from temple worship in Jerusalem. According to Josephus, the Essenes always dress in white and do not change their clothing until it wears out. They see oil as defiling. So they only purify themselves in cold water, whereas other folks would normally use oil to comb through and clean their hair. So the Essenes are a little out there. They're religious, but sort of cultish. And they probably see themselves as far more pure than either the Pharisees or the Sadducees. One of their scrolls gives us a particularly interesting glimpse into their worldview. Um, and, and it's one that, that would have been shared. It's a, it's a worldview. This is just a way of looking at the world that is not unusual for, for just this particular time in this particular part of the world. So there, this, in this scroll, this particular scroll is called the Wars of the Sons of Light Against the Sons of Darkness. Now, this is not a scroll that found its way into anyone's Bible. This book is not in anyone's Apocrypha, but you'll hear some familiar religious themes. The scroll explains their belief that they are preserving themselves as the elect of Israel. They call themselves the sons of light, and they are actively preparing for a holy war. According to Britannica.com, the scroll has detailed specifications for battle gear and signals. Sounds a little like some groups in America today. The Essenes will be on the side of the good angels, while everyone else, the sons of darkness, will be on the side of the evil angels and the devil, whom they call Belial. That's a another common term for Satan in this, in this whole culture. So good will prevail and God will ultimately reign in justice. The Essenes believe in two messiahs, which is also not uncommon at this point in Judaism. The belief is rooted in the very different descriptions of the messiah found in the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. One of the best examples is in Zechariah 6. It says the branch, which is a word consistently used in prophecy to refer to the messiah, the branch will sit on his throne and rule. And the priest, who the Essenes and others see as a separate and even more important Messiah, the priest will be on or by his throne and there will be peace between them. So if you want to dig into this more, more you can look at class 75 in the class series on the exile and the return. And there's other examples in scripture. This two Messiah belief is not a mainstream belief anymore in our modern day, but it was what the Essenes believed. And there's, you know, there has been over the centuries a lot of debate over this. So let's leave the Essenes in their insular community in Qumran. Um, they're going to come back into the story in a minute. For now, let's catch up with what's happening in politics. It's now six common era. Now that Herod Archelaus has been banished, Rome appoints the governor of Syria, the uh, Syria the, is how we would say it, that's that red part to the north, to administer Herod Archelaus's estate. This, the governor of Syria is named Quirinius, and if that sounds familiar, you're right. This is the same Quirinius that Luke says did a census of the Jews in six. BCE, 12 years earlier, back before the end of the reign of Herod the Great. And that really makes no sense. 
Quirinius was doing work in several locations for Rome as a consul back in 6 BCE, but back then he really didn't have anything to do with Palestine. So that casts a little doubt on the chronological reliability of Luke's version of events around surrounding Jesus' birth. Luke has Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth, traveling to Bethlehem as a result of Quirinius's census, and then returning directly to Nazareth. He does not mention the Magi, nor the slaughter of the innocents. Matthew, on the other hand, has them living in Bethlehem the whole time, fleeing Egypt to escape the slaughter, and then moving to Nazareth to avoid the cruelties of Herod Archelaus. And so you can see that historically speaking, the facts seem to fit Matthew's account better. So if we think Matthew may be more historically accurate, what do we do with Luke's story? Luke's got the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and the angel Gabriel, and he's got the manger and the shepherds and glory to God in the highest. Do we have to throw Luke's story out? No, no, we don't. Remember that all biblical stories are gifts from the writers and from God to us. Historical accuracy was not important to ancient writers, whether they're biblical or not in any of them. Accuracy in the details is a modern thing. The ancient writers are storytellers, and the meat of the story is what is important to them. So don't get all caught up in the wrapping paper. Look beyond the so-called facts and try to understand what important message the writer is trying to convey. The message is the gift, not the details of the story. So back to where we were in Sixth Common Era. Jesus and his cousin John are about 12 years old. Rome sends a procurator named Caponius to do the daily administration of the province. But Quirinius has power over the money. He's the one tasked with dealing with Archelaus's treasury. It is Quirinius who appoints Annas as high priest. Now, the role for high priest has for hundreds of years now been the highest Jewish position in the land. It was Herod the Great who used the power of Rome to wrest kingship from the Hasmonean priest kings. And the fact that there still is a high priest at all tells us the depth of the roots of the high priest power with the people. Annas is immensely powerful as high priest, and he will have a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now let's roll forward a few years to 14 common era. Caesar Augustus dies and Tiberius becomes ruler of the Roman Empire. Annas is still high priest. Caponius has returned to Rome and been replaced with another procurator. A procurator is just a Roman term for a government official who deals with finances. It's like the root is the same as our word procure. So that's how it, that's kind of how I remember what this person, what a procurator would do. So there's quite a bit of turmoil during these years. And Rome sends a whole succession of new procurators. And Annas actually gets deposed as high priest. But after some shuffling around, Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes high priest in 18 common era. About eight years after that, around 26 common era, Rome sends Pontius Pilate to be prefect of Judea. Prefect is the word for a Roman official. It's a general word. Some prefects are weak, some are powerful. When Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem, he stays in the palace. But for the most part, he lives up in Caesarea Maritima on the coast. You can uh, actually go there and visit the ruins. It's amazing. In movies, Pontius Pilate is always shown as a weak character, but that is completely wrong. He is a Roman knight, a power level just below that of senator, and he commands military troops. He is cruel and cares nothing 
for the sensibilities of the Jews. He sets up images of the emperor to worship throughout Jerusalem. He mints coins with pagan symbols on them. So the, the Jews immediately begin to complain to Rome. And it's right about now that the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' cousin, John. Luke says that when John's ministry begins, Emperor Tiberius has reigned 15 years. So since we know historically that Tiberius began reigning over various parts of the Roman provinces at 11 common era, our best bet is that John's ministry begins 15 years later around 26 common era, exactly the same time Pontius Pilate arrives on the scene. We know from Angel Gabriel's prophecies to John's father that John has never tested any wine or fermented drink. He, he, he abstains from alcohol completely. Matthew and Mark tell us his clothes are made of camel hair and he wears a leather belt. He eats undomesticated food, locusts and honey he finds in the wild. And we also know from Luke's account that people go out to the wilderness to see John. So we know, we know he operates in the wilderness at least part of the time. But what John is most famous for is baptizing people. And that's why he comes to be known as John the Baptist. Not to be confused with Jesus' disciple John, who later writes the various books named John in our Bibles. As far as we know, John the Baptist never writes anything. He probably cannot read or write. He preaches that people must repent. And then he and his disciples baptize them. Matthew and Mark tell us he does his baptizing in the Jordan River. So if we take all these clues together, they tell us that John the Baptist's ministry runs along the Jordan River, but that he tends to stick to the desert, which is the region south, okay? And we know he's very accessible to the people because he attracts huge crowds. And we also know he's accessible to the Sadducees who run the temple in Jerusalem because Matthew is about to tell what happens when the Sadducees come out to hear John preach. So this means he must be ministering somewhere near Jerusalem in the northern part of the wilderness near the Jordan River. Look at this map. Look at where those three circles converge right there at the upper edge of the Dead Sea by the Jordan River, right? And guess what happens to be at exactly that location? The religious community at Qumran, the Essenes, the ones ostracized from the temple for having their own purification rites. It is entirely possible that John started out as a postulate in the Essene community. He sounds like a like, little too much of a maverick to have lasted there, and um, Josephus tells us they always wear white and live in their communities. So that's a clue that if he had been a postulate, he must not have stayed in the community, even if he did give them a try. But he certainly interacted with them and may have absorbed their apocalyptic black and white end time sort of language and their expectation of God's imminent forceful action. This is just conjecture and educated guess by scholars but it goes a long way towards making sense of John the Baptist. We already know from the prophecy surrounding his birth that John is standing in the spirit of Elijah. He is supposed to turn many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he is supposed to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and turn those who are wayward towards wisdom. We also know those prophecies that John that say that John's primary task is to prepare the people for the Messiah. And he's to do this by giving the people firsthand knowledge that they are saved, that their sins are forgiven because of the visceral mercy God has for them. And as the people repent and turn back to God, God, uh, God, John baptizes them.
It is by baptizing them and letting them feel the water cleansing them that John makes God's mercy a memorable, important experience for God's people. And by making it easy for people, John fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 40. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that John is the voice calling in the wilderness to make a highway for God's arrival. And the context of that prophecy is rich with blessing. In Isaiah 40, God says, comfort my people, speak tenderly to them. Their hard labor labor is over and their sin is paid for. The hardship is done. Prepare a highway for God in the wilderness. That's the part Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote in reference to John the Baptist. Everyone will see the glory of of God arrive simultaneously. God comes with power to rule. But look. He is tender with the lambs, like a shepherd, and he carries them close to his heart. This is the message John the Baptist is to speak to the people. And John's ministry is several years before Jesus even starts his ministry, much less is crucified. Notice that the message is that their sin is paid for. God's heart is already tendered towards his people. Their sins are forgiven. God is coming not to destroy them, but to hold them close and set all things right by his just and mighty rule. Knowing this prepares the people for the Messiah, the glory of God, to arrive. Of course, the people get confused and think, well, maybe John the Baptist himself is the Messiah. And that gets the attention of the religious leaders. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, presumably Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, his father-in-law, and other high-ranking leaders, send some Levites, who are temple workers, and some scribes, who are experts in religious law, to quiz John about this. They ask him point blank if he is either Elijah or Moses, who has also prophesied to come back, or if he himself is the Messiah. John answers no to all these questions. Now, I have no explanation for why he tells them he is not Elijah when he undoubtedly knows for sure that he is. Maybe he's scared. Maybe he doesn't think they don't. They really want to know the answer. Maybe he doesn't want to argue with them about it. But what he does tell them is this. Someone more powerful than I is coming. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we already know what kind of fire that is. In fact, we know from studying the Hebrew Bible that the Holy Spirit and this purifying fire are the same thing. Mark's version even leaves out the redundant and with fire phrase. We know that if we let it, the Holy Spirit burns away all that is chaff. This fire is available to us all the time. And John is proclaiming a day when that fire is going to be unavoidable. He says, the Messiah has his winnowing fork in his hand, ready to clear the threshing floor. He is ready to gather the wheat safely into the barn and to burn all the chaff in a fire that cannot be quenched. What a wonderful promise. I definitely want to stand in that fire every day. I want my chaff burned up before it gets to be a big problem and hurts people. Of course, if you're invested in your chaff, that unquenchable fire does not sound good at all. It sounds like your entire power base is about to go up in flames. All your money and all your personal power, worthless. All your hidden deeds are about to be revealed. You will no longer be able to oppress people nor step on them under cover of darkness. 
Now, John is completely aware that the Sadducees from the temple and the Pharisees who tell people how to be pure enough to enter the temple are in the crowd. And he knows that everything he is saying shows that God does not need either the temple or the purification rites to forgive people and draw them close. He knows the Sadducees and the Pharisees are offering the people chaff in exchange for the glory and free forgiveness of God. And John's not going to stand for it. Now, remember that John has likely been influenced by the Essenes, who themselves have been rejected by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. John says, you brood of vipers, who told you to try to escape the coming opposition? You can't rely on the fact that you are Israelites. God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. What a shock that must have been to everyone for John to call the Sadducees and the Pharisees a brood of vipers. (laughs) Your Bible translation may say something like, who told you to escape the coming wrath? And that's a good translation. But the nuance of the word here means a gathered swelling force of determined opposition. It's not that God is suddenly losing his temper. It's that God is determined to oppose the evil that is oppressing his people. John says, you better start producing fruit, fruit that shows you have repented. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and any tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And of course, that makes perfect sense. If you are turned towards God, you will be rooted in living water, in life. You won't be able to help producing fruit. That's what well-tended fruit trees do (laughs) naturally. And fruit trees that are not well-rooted do not produce fruit. They are like the chaff, worthless and empty husks already without life. John calls out the religious leaders in particular because they think his teaching doesn't apply to them. So John has been doing this for about a year, probably, when his cousin Jesus shows up and wants to be baptized. Now, John knows who Jesus is, and he knows all the prophecies. The disciple John later writes in his book that when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he cries out, there he is. He's the one I was telling you about, the one who is greater than me. He is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. And we don't actually know what the disciple John means when he puts these words in the mouth of John the Baptist. He's the only one who does this. None of the other three Gospels have John the Baptist saying this. So if it means that Jesus is like the scapegoat that carries off everyone's sin, you know, it's a Jewish holiday, you know, it's a Jewish holy day that once a year during Yom Kippur, the Feast of Atonement, they lay the priest, high priest prays over the head of a goat and, and sends it out and about the people's sin and just basically deposits their sins on this, this little goat and send it out far, far away into the wilderness as a, like an object lesson, as a, as a visible sign that God is forgiving their sins once every year. And so if that's what John is talking about, he's got the wrong animal that it's a goat that's used for the annual ceremony of the forgiveness of sins. And if he really means a lamb, then that's about the lowliest of sacrifices. Lambs are used every day, like twice a day in the regular daily sacrifices. You know, big sins require sacrifices of valuable things like bulls or rams. Lambs are only a big deal once a year at Passover. And even then they don't have to do with sin in particular. The Passover lamb is just a remembrance of God saving his people from slavery. Now, I know the Lamb of God imagery ends up getting built up and used later in the New Testament and on into the centuries. But right here, it seems to be sort of stuck in there without making a ton of sense in context. And that's the thing about the Gospel of John. 
It's more of a theological book than it is a history. The disciple John may even be making an original statement here when he says Jesus is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. And so if we take it at face value as an original theological statement, then here's the important point. Part is taking away. The verb form indicates concurrent action. Jesus is taking away the sin of the world. And that verb, taking away, carries the sense of hoisting up, like pulling up an anchor. And notice that the word sin is singular. The sense here is that Jesus is lifting the weight of sin off of the world. I want to say that again. Jesus is lifting sin off of the world as if it has been a terribly heavy weight. And who do you think he is giving it to? God, of course. He's showing us how it's done. This is what we must do too. We must give this weight to God. When Jesus shows up to be baptized and John the, baptized, John the Baptist recognizes him, John says, are you kidding me? You're the one who should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, it's part of the deal for me to be baptized too. Actually, the words Jesus uses are that his baptism is necessary to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. Now, this phrase is fraught with meaning. Fulfilling your part of the terms of a contract is what the word righteousness means to the Hebrews. Over the centuries, it sort of morphed into doing all the bits of the law exactly right, as the Pharisees define it, but originally it had to do with covenants, contracts. And if you remember all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God did all the promising and all the acting. Abraham's part was simply to trust God. The exact words in Genesis 15, 6 are that Abraham believed and God credited it that to him as righteousness. Just believing fulfilled Abram's end of the deal. But also remember that God gave Abraham and his descendants a reminder, circumcision. Circumcision is a physical sign that they trust that God will do everything he promises. God has always been about letting our physical bodies reflect our spiritual relationship with him. What we do with our physical bodies teaches us and reminds us of God's presence. The Hebrews had several such reminders in their clothing and in their daily habits of eating and working. Circumcision was just one of the physical signs. The real fulfillment of the covenant, according to Genesis 15, 6, was that Abram believed. He trusted God. That was the important part. God did all the rest. And that is exactly what is happening here between John and Jesus. John knows Jesus is the Messiah and is the fulfillment of God's promises. And he doesn't understand why Jesus thinks he needs to be baptized. And Jesus is saying he needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill his part of the deal with God. Jesus needs to be baptized to show physically that he believes, he trusts that God has saved his people and that all sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter whether Jesus sinned or not. The point is not the sin. That never was the point with God. The point is that we believe wholeheartedly in God's goodness and mercy. Let that sink in for a second. The point never was the sin. The point is that we believe wholeheartedly in God's goodness and mercy towards us. And so John relents and agrees to baptize Jesus. So Jesus goes to the head of the line. No, he does not. <laughs> Luke says, while all the other people are being baptized, Jesus is baptized too. 
And as Jesus is praying, heaven opens up and the Holy Spirit, looking like an ordinary dove, alights on him. When I was there at the Jordan a few years ago, I could see doves flying around. God uses the most ordinary of ways to touch Jesus. The disciple of John tells the story a little differently, saying that the dove was only visible to John the Baptist and that seeing the dove alight on Jesus was how John the Baptist knew Jesus was the Messiah. But either way, the next part is the best part. God says to Jesus, you are my son. I love you. And I am so very pleased with you. And this is what God says to us. This is how we should feel as we come up out of that water and know for sure that God loves us and is very, very pleased with us. So let's use our breakout sessions to talk a little bit more, more about baptism and what that might mean, given the context of John the Baptist's purpose and message. Welcome back, everybody. All righty. So John the Baptist, baptism, what does baptism mean? What does the Messiah have to do with it? What did y'all come up with? We we have a question. Okay, move a little closer, Julia. I can barely hear you. We have a question. Kind of came out, or I did. Um. Do we have to be baptized? It was, you know, I am not here to make judgment calls or theological, you know, decisions for people. I think that the context that we're seeing in scripture here um, has some interesting, you know, it's interesting question to talk about. What do y'all think? We we kind of touched on that in our group too a little bit that you know there are certain denominations and churches that put primary emphasis on baptism um but that when we look at what john was doing in the context of his time and culture that there's this history of cleansing in order to be restored to community that happens throughout the hebrew bible and even through Jewish law, where, you know, if you had an illness, the type of illness that would separate you from community, when women were, after they'd given childbirth or, or had their period, they had to have a cleansing um, in order to be restored to community over and over and over again. They did it all the time as a way to be restored to community. And um, I think it was Donna who had mentioned that Jesus um coming to be baptized was another statement of I am part of this community I'm part of you I am here joining in this ritual because we are all one people what other thoughts do y'all have we sure love our rituals (laughs) we sure love our rituals that baptism is not necessary for salvation And so say more about why you believe that, Shirley. Well, uh, thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's that. Um, He didn't get baptized. Um, Nowhere in anything we've read does it say we are required to get baptized. Nothing we've read says you have to get baptized to get into heaven. Um, As a matter of fact, there are lots of verses, many we haven't come to yet, that tells you, It's not of works, and we can't do anything ourselves to get us into heaven, which I've always had a problem with because they would say, but you have to pray this prayer or say these words or do these things. You have to have this belief. You have to whatever. And I'm like, "Um, that kind of contradicts what you've been telling me that it's not of works or anything that we do that gets us to heaven. So I don't think baptism is a requirement. I don't think we, I mean, we were, there's the great commission, which says to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing, blah, blah, blah. But 
does that say everybody has to be baptized? No, it doesn't. So I don't and that's think a, it's a you know that's an inter- interesting distinction that you made just there, which was the perception that baptism is so you can get into heaven, which is not really what we're reading baptism was for in you know right. in the lesson. And and John uh, Donna says John the Baptist was already telling people they had been saved, forgiven, et cetera, before Jesus' ministry or death on the cross. Um, and so, so the, the, what is the purpose of baptism then? If, if it's not be, so that we can get into heaven, why was it important? The At outward testimony of our inward God. belief. Pardon? The outward testimony of our inward belief. It is okay. just... That's one way. That's one thing it could be for. What other ideas do y'all have? Demonstrate your faith to others. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's another point of view. Yeah. Julie Mary. and Mary were, yeah, we're talking about the Catholic yeah. perspective. Um, Gail, this was incredibly rich for me on baptism. I, thank you. It was just, I've got notes like you wouldn't believe. We don't have time for all of it. But what... Um, what I feel in, in the church I came from, we did communal baptisms. In the center of the church, we had a huge, beautiful baptismal font. And so when we baptized, we, the whole community baptized. And for us, baptism, we were in the Franciscan tradition, which teaches very strongly that you don't have to be saved. The moment you are thought in the mind of Christ, you you are saved, you, you know, but we do have the tradition of baptizing It's one of the sacraments in the church, but it was a communal effort and more emphasis on putting that you are now in community. You are not alone. You are in relationship with other people of faith that will help you walk. We don't get there alone. We do it in community. And that was more the emphasis, which Gary and I both are lifelong Catholics. That was a beautiful way of looking at it that had not been in either one of our experiences. We were baptized as babies, which they used to do, and now they're doing adult, more adult baptism. But it was so beautiful that you know, and and our our Trinitarian belief, if you believe in that, is relationship. It's interdependence. It's it's we are not alone in this. We are as community of faith, the people of faith. We have people that hold us when we falter. We are not alone, and God's in that person, and in that presence, and in that circle. And that, and that you know, um, kind of uh, resonates with the message in in the scriptures today, talking about how it is part of our relationship with God. It is part of us acknowledging that God is with us. Um, and, and, and it makes sense that, that that would be mirrored in our own faith communities, right? Um, well, and I don't know if anybody studied Course in Miracles. Gary and I did it for 12 years. And... What they teach there, it's a big book, but 12 years worth of study because it changes, just like the good news of the gospel. Where you are in your life, you read it differently. But one of the things that they teach that I, I wrestle with a little bit is when you talk about the second coming of Christ, you know, we hear that. The, 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 you know, people are still waiting for the second coming. But what they teach that made some sense to me was when we as as a community, see the Christ in the other, whoever that other is, and we always have another, don't we? As people in human development, we have to have another. We have to, we seem to do that over and over again, but when we really see the Christ and recognize the Christ in the other, that is indeed the second coming. That that is what you know, and I, I thought that was quite a beautiful tenet of that particular study. Well, it, Jesus you, certainly said over and over, the kingdom of God is now. It's here. Um, and we're going to get to studying about the second coming, you know, as we go, as we go further on. 
Um, other thoughts about um, why the ritual with the water? Why, why baptism and not something else? Well, that that kind of goes back to, at least for me, back to what I was saying before about this idea of ritual cleansing being an integral part of the culture from way, way back. And the purpose was always sort of this symbolic and sometimes practical cleaning of the body in order to be restored to community. And so going that back to what Mary said, community. It's about community, being a part of the community. That is an, a really interesting um, take on it because, you know, if you go and look at the ruins, even not ruins, even modern places, but if you go and look at, at ruins, the mikveh baths are like lead up to the places of worship. And and that ritual cleansing, as you say, was part of the Mosaic law all the way from the time it was first given. And there is a sense and the Pharisees like magnified this and defined this and added requirements and 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 so that so that there was just a particular way that you had to do do this ritual cleansing to make yourself pure to enter the worship space, to enter the temple. And it feels to me like John the Baptist is turning that on its head and saying, you have been made wholly acceptable by God. Come, turn towards God and be baptized with water in recognition that you believe this. Yeah, I have a question. Um, you said in the in the in your little lesson part of it that um, there's no indication if they were sprinkled or immersed. Correct. Um, in studies that I have been in in the past, I was told, and I don't know how much truth is in this because. I'm finding out that a lot of things I was told was not necessarily the way it's written. So, but but I was told that in the original, um, in the Greek, the word that was used was immerso, as opposed to baptizo or something along those lines. In which that, in which um, in which passage would you be saying that? I I honestly don't know, but it was with it was in reference to. Um, Jesus baptism and and uh -huh. John baptizing people that the word that was used in the Greek was the word for immersion as opposed to the word it was that that it was actually even translated originally immersed and that um when King James um ordered his translation that they actually changed it to baptize instead of immerse because whatever church he was doing believed in sprinkling as opposed to immersion and that's why I they see. changed well it. the the um the <laughs> word that is used is actually baptizo that is the greek okay. okay um that word has as you can imagine many meanings <laughs> right it uh can it can mean to dip something repeatedly it can mean to immerse or to sink, like submerge sink. It can be, it can be, um, it can just mean to wash something. Uh, it can mean to bathe. It can mean to overwhelm. Um, so it, it can mean any number of things. Certainly the idea of, of cleansing was more ritual for the Jews. Okay. It wasn't like you take a, you know, so, and, and even, even nowadays, when you go to the Wailing Wall in, or the Western Wall in Jerusalem, they have like little wash basins there where you can wash and you, you just wash up your hands. There's, you know, you can YouTube, how do you appropriately wash? And it's just like, it's part of, you know, um, so that, that I, I remember somebody told me once that, that, that the Baptist dunk 
the Catholic sprinkle and the Quakers dry clean because <laughs> Quakers, don't, Quakers don't do baptism at all. You know, we're all Christian. We're all Christian. So <laughs> I love that, you know, cause I'm like a cat by nature. So I'm going, uh, dry cleaning sounds good to me. <laughs> no, but, you know, and I think that, that what matters as with everything with God is what is in your heart. And what is it that you need? I think that, that if there had been someone on the shore of the Jordan River who was unable to get in the water, that John the Baptist would have come right out and sprinkled them. I don't think dunking was the point and it's possibly he wasn't it's possible he wasn't dunking them that he was pouring water and he and his disciples were pouring water on them that jordan river and it could have to do with the level of the jordan river because when i was there it was like ankle deep right there so (laughs) you know it could vary over time and it's like everything else don't get hung up in the wrapping paper the wrapping Okay, so there was a trick question in here. What was the Messiah's role in the baptism? That was an easy one for me, Gail. Okay. The Messiah um, saying he would step back to the back of the line was a, a portender of his whole gospel message. Yeah, the whole idea, and I'm inferring that you know, between the lines and reading that phrase that, that Jesus, while the other people were being baptized, so what Jesus was baptized. And I just thought that was such a beautiful picture of him. But to me, that spoke to his humanity and his um, being part of us, not to his being Messiah. Right. I'm not sure I saw anything in any of this on your, on your study sheet that spoke about baptism in relation to the the Messiah having a role in it. It was more like the baptism was to prepare us for the Messiah. The baptism was about us. I agree. His role was, he said, to fulfill the righteousness, to fulfill the commitment, to fulfill the promise. Right. He participated in our humanity fully. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and so, so was there anything else? And uh, it was a rich class for me to prepare oh. as well. Just yeah. seeing that, seeing that how the Essenes might've played into this and understanding what was going on with, with Herod Archelaus and Annas and Caiaphas and all that stuff. And, and just the, just the, you know, prepare the way, in the wilderness for the Lord. And then seeing that, that whole, if you go back and look at that prophecy, that it's all about God coming to comfort us. And the one we read last week about how it was, it was about the road needed to be smooth, a smooth place because God was bringing all his wounded people with him. Mm -hmm. Mm. That just floors me. (laughs) Now I have a question. When, Jesus was baptized. Do we know about what age that would be? Because does he have disciples at that time? No, he has not started his ministry yet. He's about 30 years old, it says. Okay. And he's, this is the, this will mark the, the, the place where he begins to think seriously about entering into ministry. Um, the very next thing that happens will be his temptation for 40 days uh, in the wilderness. And we're going to talk about that next week um, and talk about what that meant to him at this point in his life, because it wasn't until after that, that he began his ministry. Now we know Jesus had a one and done on this baptism. Do we know Anything about the other people that were getting baptized? Whether they got baptized more than once? Yeah, because it seems like that might be something they do to get ready for the temple or whatever. Well, that's an interesting thought. You know, the Jews did the Yom Kippur happened every year. 
the you went into the mikveh every time you you know went to the temple and i know that that christians in some denominations just some denominations not all christians you know but some denominations get in a real kerfluffle if you ask them to baptize you again if you've ever been mm -hmm. baptized because it's like saying the holy spirit didn't do it right the first time um, yeah. but you're making a mockery of the cross. <laughs> Mary had something to say about a conversation she had with a Jewish friend of this. Um, it's a good friend of mine that was raised in her whole family, Jewish, and then she, and later in life she became a Presbyterian priest. But we were talking about this one day, we we're coming up on um, Triduum, and you know, Triduum is Easter, that's Easter, a, yeah. three days of Easter, and so we were talking about. Um, baptism and because uh, that was one of the roles I had at my church to work with the people that adults and she said Mary 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 you put too much emphasis you Catholics put too much emphasis on baptism she said you know I, I was raised in the Jewish faith it is just part of the culture that we cleanse and we do that and you guys have taken it and just made it this this big thing you know and it was a different lens for me because I came out of a tradition that taught you know baptism was um critically important and um she just kind of put it in context for me and Gail you said about and I have a question I was so intrigued by all the information on the Essenes I knew about these scenes, but not the depth of this. And I think, and the question will be, are they, if you were to put baptism in a cultural, geopolitical environment, did all this evolve out of the fact that one of the dominant cultures was a scenes at that time because they talked about the two messiahs, king and priest. They, in our baptismal language in the Catholic tradition, you are baptized to be priest, prophet, and king. That comes from the Essenes, possibly? Um, I, I think the Essenes are just like what we would see as, like you would see the Franciscan monastic community. It's just right. another expression of, in, in their case, Judaism, whereas for us it would be Christianity. And each... Each expression had its, like the Pharisees had an expression and the Sadducees had an expression and Essenes had an expression. And it's just like Christianity. We all have different, you know, ways Flavors. to express our belief. But what, what I think this idea of can you be baptized again or not is rooted in is your view of the purpose of baptism. If you believe that you are baptized in order to go to heaven, you will not believe that people can be baptized a second time because you will believe that the Holy Spirit did it once. It's irrevocable. It's done forever. And you would be slapping the face of the Holy Spirit if you felt like, you know, you needed to be baptized more than once. On the other hand, if your view as a Christian of baptism um, is more um, like what John the Baptist was preaching, which is turn from back to God, know that God forgives you and loves you, then it would make sense to you that if you, you know, were baptized and then later in life just veered away, that when you turned back, you might want to express that again as baptism, all right? That you would feel a need, an important and urgent need to be baptized again. And, um, and likewise, often people who are baptized as infants, when they become adults, they feel that need to um, express this understanding of God in the ritual act of baptism. So I can understand why people see it both ways and see it vehemently both ways. Donna, My oldest. Donna has said a couple of things. Um, she said, um, it's water cleaning, washing things away. Why is when I asked why baptism, um, that there is a place in Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel 36, 24 and 25 that says, 
um, at that time, which is an in, Ezekiel is an end time prophecy, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean for all from all wow. your filthiness. I will cleanse you. So that's a sprinkling kind of idea. Ephesians, uh, Eric and Ellen um, brought up that Ephesians 4, 5 um, was brought to their church as a reason there should be only one baptism. Tell me more about that, Eric and Ellen. Um, it's, I just remember the verse, um, hang on there. It, it just says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I, again, I don't know the context of that all that's Ephesians five. And then Ephesians four, six says one God and father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. So I, I had just been taught cause I was baptized as an infant. And that was the verse that was brought to my attention to say, um, no, you don't need to again, be baptized as, you know, as an adult. But again, I, I just remember that verse, but I don't know. Right. What the verse says is there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Um, and, and so that to me is talking more about the fabric of baptism, of what baptism is, not the timing, style, or frequency of baptism. Um, it's, it's that we share in the body of Christ. Doesn't mean the body of Christ is always expressed in the same way, right? In, in different contexts. Donna says, um, being baptized more than once as a teenager, teenager each summer camp <laughs> with church um, felt like we might not have really meant it completely the first time that we were just trying to be more sure. <laughs> that's what I was gonna share my son went through that because when he was five he made a profession of faith and he went up to the preacher and said when are you going to baptize me so he got baptized at five years old well when he was a teenager he's got some memory issues and he doesn't remember much of his childhood Mm. and he couldn't remember being baptized he knew the story because he'd heard me tell it but um and he felt like he had gotten away from the Lord and he had kind of come back and he asked about being baptized and they told him, well, if you were already baptized, you're, you're making a mockery of the cross if you get baptized a second time. And so he struggled for a long time um, with whether he should go forward for salvation and get baptized or, you know, what he finally did was um, what we called in the Baptist church a rededication of his life. And he chose not to get baptized again, but he really struggled with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's unfair that he struggled with that because reading now, but I know people, I don't think people, I don't think Christians should throw up barriers between anybody and God. Exactly. Period. The end. You know, that is my personal viewpoint. You, I, I can sit in the pew with somebody who thinks otherwise, you know, um, and, and, and recognize their Christianity and honor it. And, um, but I'm hoping that this, that this discussion, this class, these thoughts, this context has given you some food for thought um, to mull over with respect to baptism and, uh, um, did anyone have anything to say before we go? I've always referred to my baptism as an adult as my fire insurance. <laughs> you know, because I know I'm good. It's okay. And one of the things you talk about in the class handout on the message is it to tell them their sins have been paid for, and then parenthetically you say by the hardships they've suffered already. Isn't that, you know, everything- That was the context of the original prophecy. Right. And everything doesn't get just better the minute you get baptized or become a Christian or make this choice. And- It's kind of like getting married. It doesn't feel different the next minute. Yeah. Yeah, for your birthday. Right. 60. Feels a lot like being 59. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I one of my ministries was work walking with newly baptized adults in the Catholic Church, what they call the year of mystagogy, which is you've been baptized, but now you're on the walk. And I remember one of my newly baptized women, adult women, came to me after baptism, and she came to me, and she was pissed. Excuse my language, but she got in my face, and she said, Mary, you told me I was going to be different. She was so angry, and she said, you told me. And I am not, <laughs> you know, I said, honey, give it a little time. <laughs> you didn't go in Saturday night, get baptized at vigil, and then Sunday, everything changes. <laughs> Let us walk with you. Well, she did stay and she, you know, but I remember that. I thought, you know, there are people that take it so literal and, um, and I was kind of glad she did that to me. It made me more cognizant of being more gentle with messages, you know, yes, um, because it was a, it has always been, at least from John the Baptist point of view, it was a, it was a sign of what had already happened in the heart, you know, mm-hmm. and, but it's not that you have to be better. It's simply an acknowledgement of the direction you're facing, that you're mm-hmm. facing God you know, intentionally. Donna, Donna, we'll close with what Donna says here. She says, the bottom line to me is that God knows my heart. The reason I wanted to get baptized was always to be closer. Mm. And I'll bless you with Donna's words there. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.